The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Good morning. Um, It is a privilege to get to worship God with you this morning. Um, I was uh, happy when when, uh, Matt and Sebastian reached out to me, asked if I could come and preach. Um, And, you know, obviously this is my first time here. Thank you all for welcoming me so warmly. But if I know anything about Matt and Sebastian, I am already encouraged by your church. You know, I've already been encouraged to sit here and worship with you today. Um, And just for one more point of connection, uh, one of your elders, Sebastian, we were elders at the same time at a church in D.C. Not only was he one of the elders at St. Thomas Me, he was also my landlord for a moment. (laughs) So let me just testify, because if you know anything about landlords, not always a picture of godliness and kindness. Sebastian loves Jesus so much that he was a godly and kind landlord. Praise God. Uh, and it's uh, a good, good day for me to get to be able to worship Jesus with you. Um, I want to pray one more time, and then we will look at God's word. Father, we, we come before you again in Jesus' name. Um, it's good for us to come before you in prayer lots of times as we worship you. Father, because we are in desperate need of your grace. And it's an incredible privilege that we get to speak with you directly, Father. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Father, and we pray that as we open your word, that this would be a useful time, God, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would work in us. And Father, I pray whatever kind of distractions, whatever kinds of Um, pride may stand in the way of us hearing from you, Father. We pray you would remove it. And Father, we pray you would help me to preach with boldness and truthfulness and clarity. Father, that you would show your strength and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the, the title for this morning from that text that was just read is um, Overcoming Evil. Overcoming evil, which he talks about right there in that passage. We're going to focus mainly on verses 17 to 21. But one of the things that's interesting to me about this passage is um, some of the ways that it can mirror things that happen in all areas of our lives. So one example um, is professional sports. I'm a sports fan, I especially basketball. I'm very good at watching sports. I'm not that great at 
playing sports, um, but I am a professional watcher, especially of basketball. Um, and one of the things that you see, of course, when you see sports is there are very particular rules and guidelines, not only within the games, but sometimes within the leagues themselves. And those can change. You know, for instance, as an NBA fan, I've noticed way more flagrant fouls being called more than ever. And, you know, apparently you're not allowed to breathe on people anymore or you get kicked out of the game. But one of the reasons those rules are in place is for the sake of fairness. They're things that players are not allowed to do. They're not allowed to take steroids, for example. They're not allowed to do things that are cheating, right? But one kind of cheating um, that's also not allowed is gambling. You know, players are not allowed to gamble because that may affect the way that they play. Um, because they could have a chance to win the game and they could be betting against themselves. And so then there will be these fans that come and expecting their team to win. And then somebody could just throw the game completely. There could be people. There's a conflict of interest because while your team and the fans expect you to be working towards one goal, you could be working towards another one altogether. There's a baseball player, Pete Rose, who's been banned from baseball forever because of gambling. There's a conflict of interest because you could be playing a whole nother game on the side, which would be bad because a lot is at stake, reflects on the team bad, makes the sport look bad. I bring that up to say there are scenarios in our everyday lives when we do have a chance for our team to win because there is actually a kind of conflict between good and evil happening in the world that we live in. And I don't mean that there's a scoreboard involved, but there are situations where we can choose to win, but sometimes we choose to lose because there's a whole nother game that we're playing. There's a conflict of interest and a lot is at stake. And so one of the things that, that I want this message to be able to do is to remind us of the bigger things that are at stake, even in our regular interactions with people. Because if we get confused about what the goal should be, about what we're actually after, then other interests can supersede the interests of God. Um, I wonder if anybody in this room um, has ever had to deal with conflict, relational conflict. Of course we have. There's no way to go through life without relational conflict. We have to deal with difficult people and, uh, at work. Then we come home and have to deal with difficult people. <laughs> Somebody's like, I'm sitting next to a difficult person right now. Blink twice if it's you. <laughs> um, dealing with difficult people and relationship conflict is one of the hardest things about our life. I wonder if you've ever been doing something fun that was ruined because somebody's being difficult. Um, or, or maybe something happened earlier in the day and for the rest of that night that person looks at you crazy no matter what you said. Or sometimes someone just feels high maintenance. Um, if, I be, if I asked you about, you know, what are the toughest areas of your life right now, there's a good chance what you would bring up would have something to do with some relational conflict of some sort. This is something we all have to deal with. And one of the hardest things about dealing with that conflict is figuring out how to respond, especially when we feel like someone has done something to us. How are we tempted to respond when we feel like someone has done evil to us? By doing evil back at them. I saw someone online with a shirt that said, I'm saved, but you can still catch these hands. I was looking in Romans. I didn't see that. <laughs> Instead, Scripture tells us how we should respond even when someone has done evil to us. And that's really the, the main idea of this sermon. Very simple is we should overcome evil with good. 
Now, in this chapter of Romans, in chapter 12, Paul has made the turn that he often does where he begins to tell them how to live their lives in light of all the big gospel truth that he's told them. He has been um, pointing to the glory of Jesus. He's been pointing to the beauty of justification by faith. He's pointed how sinful we are, how great the Savior is, and he's given us all kinds of implications here in chapter 12 where he begins to tell us here's how that works out. And What's interesting about when Paul begins to tell us how to apply that gospel truth, it often starts relationally. Paul is often saying, in light of that, here's how you interact with one another and with the world around you. And if we could sum up how he's telling us to live, it would be love. But in verse 17, he makes this shift to talking about how we should live in this hostile world. And these Roman Christians are living in a very hostile world, right? If we, if we do look at verse, verse 14... He starts out saying, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, right? How believers should interact in a hostile world that, that hates our Lord and often will hate us. It sounds a lot like what Jesus said in, in Matthew 5. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Where Jesus is saying, hey, how about instead of calling down curses on the heads of those who persecute us, we pray for them, that we speak blessing to them. What we're going to focus on is verses 17 to 21 and three ways to overcome evil with good. And I think these commands apply both with brothers and sisters and also with outsiders. All right. So if we're going to overcome evil with good in the midst of relational conflict, number one, we need to pursue peace. We need to pursue peace. And as a side note, if the Lord leads you to say amen or mm, or that's good, just know it'll encourage me. <laughs> No pressure, but pressure. I'll read verse 17 again. Very simply says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Paul right away knows our temptation when someone has done evil to us. The first thing that pops into our mind often, the first thought is how to get them back. We'll even do this with small stuff sometimes, like somebody texting us back too slow. Well, they'll text us back and we'll be like, I'm not just going to text you right back. And we'll stand there and set a timer. I'm going to make them wait at least nine minutes. Um, and part of that, the reason we do that is some of us are just petty and we need to pray about that. But also there is a sense of competition that can rise up in our hearts pretty easily. Well, we like to think of relational conflicts as little competitions that we're trying to win. And we don't want someone to get one up on us. We don't want to lose these little competitions. We want to be able to get more points on the relational board. Or maybe we've been hurt and we want to inflict that same pain. Um, and I'll say this, competition's great when the goal is winning. If you're playing a, a pickup basketball game or you're playing a board game, competition is fine. Though even then, it can go bad. I've seen some bad games of Monopoly. But in other contexts, competition can really distract you from the real goal. This is what I'm talking about, where there's a whole different game going on than the one God has called us to. And I see this with my kids who can turn anything into a competition. Who eats their food more quickly? Who was the quietest during nap? Who was the quickest up the stairs? And it's not just kids, though. All of us can insert this sense of competition into everything. You know, one example is when we're driving. Have you ever been driving and somebody behind you gets over and to pass you? You see him in your rearview mirror, and you're like, oh, you're just going to pass me? <laughs> oh, I'm driving too slow for you? And then subconsciously, you, like, press the gas just a little bit. <laughs> just so they don't know, but you're like, you're not going to pass me. Um, 
And we do this thing like, oh, you're going to pass me. I bet you won't do it again. You're going to be stuck behind that other car. And we're driving like a NASCAR driver for no reason whatsoever, other than there's some strange sense of competition in us that wants to win every interaction we have with other people. Yet what we see in Scripture is God has not encouraged us to conquer and defeat each other in interactions, but to love each other. So here's the thing. In relationship, competition poisons everything. Competition is this cancer that spreads to every corner of our heart and kills off love. Because think about it. How can you be committed to the good of other people if your main goal is defeating other people or something? You cannot. You, you, you become purely self-interested. You cannot be committed to someone else's good and be committed to showing that you're better than them at the same time. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. This is not some competition to win. The word he uses for repay means exactly what it sounds like to give back or to return. Because what we often want to do is make some kind of trade. Oh, if you gave me that evil, then this is what I'll give you. It's a weird bartering system. It's some kind of strange transaction. You know, so what would returning evil for evil looks like? It would look like your coworker talks crazy to you, so you talk crazy back. You found out someone was gossiping about you, so you start doing the same to them. Your spouse felt cold earlier, so you determine, I'm going to be cold in return. You're persecuted for your faith, so you respond aggressively and attack. This is exactly what he's telling us not to do. And we'll talk about that in more detail in the second point. And he adds to that command with one of the reasons, though, why we shouldn't. He says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. He's saying, be careful, give thought and attention to this. This is something that should take up time in our prayer lives and reflections at the end of the day. Have I been careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone? Now, you may say, no, trip. what does that mean? That sounds exhausting. You cannot please everybody. Just ask someone who's in charge of the music on a road trip. You can't make everybody happy. Does he mean that we are supposed to be people pleasers for Jesus? That we should go around the office all day and ask everyone's thoughts on what's right in the conflict to make sure, um, right, that we do what they think? Or we should take a poll and see what gets the highest percentage? No, Paul, he's not telling us to be people pleasers. Paul is saying we should live lives that are above reproach, that believers, the way we live reflects on our brothers and sisters in Jesus and reflects on our Savior. So we should live in a way that honors him in a way that we don't give people stuff to point to. One of my favorite passages in First Peter, where Peter says, friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they will accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He's saying the way that you interact with other people, even in conflict, is not just about some self-improvement plan. God isn't just interested in you just being the best you. It's not just about us. It's about the glory of God and even the souls of other people. So when you think about Areas in your life where you've had relational conflict, where you have not interacted in the way that God has called us to, what we've done in that moment is we said something about God that isn't true. What we've done in that moment is we haven't represented him well. Now, of course, we serve a gracious Savior who forgives us, but what he's called us to is to interact even in conflict in a way that points to the goodness, the love, and the grace of Jesus. And this is something that we as a church can hold each other to. I don't know if you've ever had a, a conflict where one of your friends is around and they see it. Now, there's sometimes when we, you know, when someone blows up at someone and there's that tension in the room where everyone's just kind of looking at their feet for a while. But there are other times when we are not even 
aware of how much we, we've misrepresented Jesus in conflict, one of the kindest things we can do for each other, this is what's great about deep relationship, is you can say to people, what you did was wrong, and they know it comes from a place of love. This is one of the places that we can hold each other accountable. And it's good for us when we're not sure whether or not we've interacted in a way that's honored God to talk to friends about it. To say, now they acted very offended when I did ABC. What do you think? Um, Here's what I did. Tell me what you think about it is a posture of humility that we want to be found among believers in Jesus. So I I will say this, though, that this can get out of hand and turn into people pleasing where we never want to disappoint anyone. We want to make everybody happy. I'm not saying we should turn ourselves into politicians with approval numbers. I'm not saying we should hide or pretend either. I'm not saying we should hide that we're really a mess or pretend. I'm saying we want to reflect the goodness of God, not just get people on our side. Verse 18, Paul says this, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Part of it is because, and and why I love this part, is because Paul understands what we all do, that there's no way for us to have great relationships with everybody around us, right? He says, as far as it depends on you, if possible. It made my life easier the day that I realized some people, um, there are some people I'm not going to be able to have an amazing relationship with. But that does not mean that I just accept it and don't try because some of us immediately were like, I'm off the hook. Well, no, 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 that's not what he's saying. He's he's saying as far as it depends on us, we should make effort. Um, The peace Paul talks about is not a passive peace. This is an active peace he's asking. He's saying we should pursue peace. And living at peace doesn't just mean we're not yelling at each other, we're not fighting. It means there are no barriers between us. It means we are reconciled. Not that we have to be best friends with everybody, but that doesn't mean we let conflict build and stay. And um, we also can't always just sit around and wait for peace to show up. We should be actively pursuing it. You know, sometimes we'll know something's off relationally and we'll be like, I'm good if they're good. And, you know, neither one of you are good. Well, sometimes someone says, oh, I'm good, we're fine, and you know they are lying. Well, well, here's what happens. If we are sons and daughters of the peacemaker, then it is good for us to pursue peace even when somebody's pretending it's already there. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Um, I want you to think of someone in your life who you need to initiate peace with. You may not even know what's wrong, but it's good to ask, hey, are we good? Is something up? Have I offended you? I want you to really think about who's someone in my life where there's some kind of relational strife or there's some distance. What does it look like to pursue peace, to initiate a conversation about that, especially if we're to be these people of peace? He does say as far as it depends on you, you can only control yourself. I remember um, I, there, there was someone who I had a... Um, you know, I, I jokingly called them my frenemy to my wife. Like, we love each other. We, we have so much in common. But conversations can be so hard sometimes. And, and here's part of why I feel like he does ABC. So I went and talked to him. I said, hey, I love you, bro. I feel like sometimes when we hang out, these are the things that leave me feeling less joyful than before. And, um, and I thought I had very godly and clearly laid it out. And I expected him to say, oh, you're right. I didn't. And he said, I don't think that's true. And I said, okay. <laughs> and what it told me is, okay, well, I think there may be a ceiling to how close we are. 
But I'm not going to let that be a ceiling on my willingness to, as far as it depends on me, live at peace with my brother in Jesus. So that's the balance we're trying to strike. Um, Two more things before we move on to the next point. One, don't be someone else's difficult person. Because here's the thing. Sometimes we were like, yeah, when people do evil to me, I'm not going to do evil back. Um, And man, those difficult people, let me think about how to bear with them. Sometimes we love to jump over and apply something to someone else that we need to apply to ourselves first. Don't be the thing that when someone asks, hey, you know, what's going on in your life, that you're the person that that they bring up that is making everything more difficult. We want to be an encouragement to the people around us. And then the other thing is don't blame all your problems in your life on the difficult people around you, because we can convince ourselves if only this if only my boss was nicer, my life would just be better. Everything would be perfect. If only my wife, if only my kids, I want to encourage you. um, Sometimes uh, we're not as self-reflective. Because we let ourselves off the hook by blaming other people around us. Amen. I've heard a few amens out there. God bless you. (laughs) You want to overcome evil with good. First was pursue peace. Number two, don't take revenge. Don't take revenge. Revenge is something that we all know well. It's, It's the plot of countless movies. You know, there's a whole franchise of you know, somebody getting kidnapped or someone doing something is like, oh, he killed my father. I'm going for him. Or I have a very specific set of skills, you know, all kind of <laughs> revenge type movies. And Paul doesn't think about it that way, though. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath for it is written. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Revenge is assessing the damage that somebody did to you and then trying to find a way to do that same damage to them. It doesn't always have to be grand or drastic either. Revenge doesn't have to be a big plan or plot. Um, It can be small and it's hard because it can feel like the right thing to do because we can't stomach letting somebody get away with something bad. We think they don't deserve to just go on like nothing happened. It's an injustice. Have you ever found it hard to get over something somebody did to you because you're like, I can't just say I forgive you and move on. That's not fair. Um. But as believers, our lives are built on not getting what we deserve. Is that not what God did for us in Jesus? It's not our entire faith, all the songs we're singing, the beauty of these passages about us not getting what we deserve. From this gracious Savior, there is there's grace. And, and sometimes our problems are, are because we love to receive grace. We just don't like to give it. Grace is beautiful when we're receiving it. Grace seems very difficult when we need to give it to someone else. Usually, when someone loves to receive lots of something, but they hoard it to themselves and don't like to share it, we call those people greedy. We cannot be greedy or stingy with grace. Scripture says we can't choose between the two. If we have received grace, we have to give it. Ephesians 4 is telling us, if you have been forgiven, forgive others. If we've received mercy, we have to give it. And one of the things we love to do is when we've wronged someone, we love to come up with all these excuses like, well, I mean, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. I didn't have my coffee yet. It was a hard season and give ourselves excuses. But when someone sinned against us, we turn into fake actors. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And no one can get away with anything. God has called us to give mercy, to give grace in the same way we've received it. Verse 16, Paul Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people 
of low position. You know, and, and right before this, he said, don't be conceited. Don't be conceited, he says, right after that. This is right before our verses in verse 17. And one of the ways that this connects is it's our conceit that makes it hard for us to be charitable with other people. A lack of charity comes from an abundance of pride. Um, an unwillingness to, to associate with certain people. We're too proud. We take ourselves too seriously. We only consider our interests. All, all of my friends and even myself who are easily offended, it's because we just take ourselves way too seriously. Someone laughs in the wrong way and we feel deeply offended. How dare you laugh at me in that way? Um, there's a conceit that will make it harder for us not to repay evil for evil. Verse 19, he says, leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So another place of humility, understanding our place. Paul is saying, understand your role. We are not a judge. We may be a victim to someone doing evil, but it does not mean we are the judge. When we try to take God's role and say, I'm going to take revenge to make things right. I'm going to take that into my, my hands. We're doing vigilante justice. We are trying to rob God of his role. To bring vengeance. And one of the main problems with doing this is that we are bad judges. We're not good at being judges. We don't always know how to exercise the best judgment. Anybody who has friends who like to prank knows this. Somebody will spill your water and then somebody burns their house and it's like, that's not the same. <laughs> We're not good at executing judgment all the time. For example, um, a while back there was uh, an Auburn fan who taped the Cam Newton jersey to a statue on Alabama's campus. They were furious. The Alabama fan responded by saying, okay, what's something that means a lot to them? Let me get them back. And so he went to their campus every day. They had these big, this big historic tree that had been there for hundreds of years. It's where the, the, all the students would gather. And he poisoned it every single day. And that tree died. And he thought they taped a T-shirt to a statue. You know what I'll do? destroy 100 years of legacy. And he got caught because he called into a radio show and bragged about it. Again, this guy's not good at revenge or justice. He got three years in prison and an $800,000 fine. We are not good at uh, exercising judgment in a way that is fair. But then there's God. God is the perfect judge. God is the perfect judge. He doesn't need to gather evidence. He doesn't need to figure out how to collect the facts. He doesn't need lawyers to lay it out for him. He doesn't need a jury of our peers. He's never made a wrong judgment. He's never not had everything in mind. He's never had any bias that would keep him from making the wrong judgment. We can trust God to take care of the justice. Scripture is clear that God will make all things right. And we'll all face him in judgment and we will have to face him for the things that we have done. So we do not want to try to take God's role of being the just judge and avenger of all wrongs on ourselves. Not only that, first Peter two twenty three. this is what it says about Jesus. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus will be the judge. Scripture is clear. We will all be raised and stand before Jesus. And even Jesus himself trusted the Father, right? It says he didn't retaliate. He trusted the Father. And God is saying, I have this. And it should be freeing to know that God has this. 
For one, when has revenge ever erased a wrong? When has you repaying evil for evil ever erased the original pain and hurt of the evil act? And if you read the Psalms, they're filled with reminders that God will bring justice. He will bring justice to the wicked. And when we look at how crazy our world is, it is comforting to know that God will make all things right. And it should be freeing to us to know that we don't have to go settle every score. Some of us live our whole lives trying to settle scores, and that's very exhausting to count up every time anybody has wronged you and make sure they don't get away with anything. i got to make sure that the exact same thing happens to them. It is exhausting to go through life that way. Much more freeing to say, I know a perfect judge who will take care of it. Let me just be faithful. And it makes it easier for us not to live our lives in bitterness. When we say, I can hand that over to Jesus, he got it. As if we don't have enough things to worry about and stress us out in our regular lives without going around doing vigilante justice. And we don't even have all the information. That's one of the things. Sometimes we'll be slighted and feel like someone did something horrible to us. It's much easier to say God has this. And it's not us just letting it go. It's letting God take care of it. Want to overcome evil with good. Last point is this. Um. We want to do good. Right. So we want to pursue peace, not take revenge. And number three, we want to do good. And this is where some people want to get off the boat. Verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. An enemy is somebody that is on the opposite side of us in some way, right? Someone who, who's working for different things, right? So he's saying, not only should you not take revenge, if your enemy's hungry, feed them. And, you know, Christianity is not a barter system. We don't do good to people only when they do good to us. Um, it's not if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's even if you stab my back, I'll scratch yours. With, of course, Jesus being... The, the greatest example. And, you know, you might say it's counterintuitive to feed your enemy. That sounds like it'll just make them stronger. This is not boxing and relationships are not competitions. Jesus has called us not to counterpunch and make the enemy weaker. Jesus has called us to work for the good of those even who are our enemies. And, you know, we may be at a place where we feel like, oh, our culture is increasingly hostile to Christianity and the culture is more aggressive in how they try to excommunicate those who don't agree with their views. How should we respond to that? Not by also getting more aggressive. Instead, we should respond with love. Just culturally, you know, our culture is at a place where people are willing to excuse a lot of things in the name of their side winning. Paul calls us to a charity that, uh, and a love and a kindness that seeks the good of everyone. So we even have to guard ourselves against conversations and content and stuff that we read that diminishes our love, that makes our love go down and then doubles our vitriol. It doubles all our hatred and anger towards other people. You know, if you are in a conversation and you leave and you leave furious at people and not determined to love them, but instead you want to find a way to defeat them, maybe those are not the people you should be having conversations with. If you listen to a podcast and you walk away not determined to seek the good of other people, but to seek the ill of other people, maybe that's not a podcast you should be listening to. There is no cultural moment that throws out our obligation to even love our enemies. 
we cannot excuse non-Christian behavior because the culture is rough. I don't know if you've ever read anything about what was happening in Rome at the time. Scripture's called us to even love our enemies. And, and here's the thing, even if we're thinking about that, you know, love is the victory that we're after. Loving people like Jesus is the victory that we should be going for. Um, and nothing should make us indifferent to the sorrows or the situations of others, right? He's telling us to rejoice with those who rejoice. And, and, and this is what he says about, um, about even uh, feeding and giving drink to our enemies. He says, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Some of you might be, this can't be literal. I don't even know if I have any coal at home. Um, well, I say the scholars are a little torn on exactly what this means. It could, it could mean doing these acts of kindness that increase people's guilt and shame. Um, coals of fire could be an ancient custom that symbolizes, you know, a changed mind that comes from a deed of love. Um, and both of those seem like um, they could be faithful ways to read the text. It's hard to know exactly. But what we do know is the point that we should be responding to evil with good. And the way that we respond to people should be seeking their good. Again, verse 21, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. This whole passage is a reminder that the way we treat others is not finally decided by how they treat us. And one of the ways we know is that the cross of Jesus is the starting point for all Christian ethics. What Jesus did on the cross is the starting point. Um, you know, you even think about um, the way that Scripture talks about husbands loving their wives. Husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. Right. You know, this is how we know love, that Christ laid down his life. You're talking about Jesus and, and perseverance. Right. Who endured the cross for the sake of the joy set before him. Uh, Philippians 2 and it's talking about humility. It says, have the same mind among yourselves who is in Christ Jesus. Right. And then it talks about him humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross over and over and over again. The New Testament says, here's how you know how you should be in the world. If you want one picture, if you want one moment that shows how to interact with the world around you, that moment is the cross of Jesus. And that's also true for when people do evil against us. And I'll say this, you know, thinking about such a glorious picture about how to interact with our enemies. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I. I want you to know that when you think of this Savior, I don't want you to think of a Savior who can't wait for an opportunity, um, who can't wait for an opportunity to hurl guilt and shame on you. I don't want you to think of a Savior who, who stands there with his arms crossed looking, uh, looking for a way to discourage you. Instead, what we have is a Savior who went after his enemies. I don't want you to think of a Savior who said, I'll have my arms crossed until you do the right things, and then I'll consider letting you among me. Instead, this is a Savior who was the perfect example of loving his enemies. When Jesus, the eternal Son of God, wrapped himself in human flesh to be born from the womb of a woman he created, that was Jesus loving his enemies. When Jesus uh, submitted himself to being a baby and a child and had to learn like regular humans did. That was Jesus loving his enemies. When Jesus walked amongst sinners, this was Jesus loving his enemies. When Jesus went to the cross and paid for sins that he did not commit, sweat blood and anguish at it, this was Jesus loving his enemies. When Jesus resurrected from the grave, victorious over death, victorious over the devil, victorious over sin, this was Jesus loving his enemies. Jesus 
has nobody in his family who wasn't his enemy before he went after them and brought them into his family. We serve a Savior who is the perfect example of loving his enemies, and this is what Jesus has called us to. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to know this is the Savior who calls you to himself today. If you think, man, I am too sinful to be in a relationship with this God, that's true, but there's a Savior who already paid for those sins. His name is Jesus, and it's a love like none we've ever seen. Not only was Jesus loving his enemies, he was once and for all overcoming evil. And one of the glories of being a believer in Jesus is what we have to look forward to is all hopeful. We're not even wondering, but will Jesus be able to win in the end? He already won. And we're awaiting the day when what Jesus has already done will be seen and realized. And in the meantime, we get to be those who are the first fruits. We get to be those who look more and more like Jesus each day. And my prayer is that we would see that not as a burden, but as a privilege. That what all of creation was made for and what all of glory will look like, we get to inch closer and closer to that with each day. And of course, Jesus is the perfect example, even while he's on the cross. Even while he's on the cross, he's not calling down curses. He's saying, Father, forgive them. My prayer is that um, as we look at that beautiful picture of Jesus, the Lord will make us more and more like him. Amen. 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 Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for the cross of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the way it teaches us to love. Father, we thank you for the way it teaches us to suffer, for the way it teaches us to interact with each other. And Father, we pray that we would spend less time focusing on ourselves and more time focusing on Jesus, God, that that incredible, glorious picture would draw us closer to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.